The content of this program is sponsored by Make It Work Nevada. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More or the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. If your healthcare provider is not trained to ask questions about, you know, your environment, the context in which you live, we'll never get high quality care. It, it, it's really based on trust. That's Chi Chi Oku. We heard from her in the last episode. She's the executive director of EverThrive Illinois, which succeeded in the last couple of years in getting the state to expand Medicaid to pay for women and pregnant capable people in the 12 month postpartum period. They also got coverage for doulas and midwives, and they're working to get undocumented women covered under Medicaid. All of this is good, but it doesn't change the basic issue. Racism in the medical system. Black women and black pregnant capable people's bodies have historically and continue to be under surveillance and monitored and controlled. I wrote a report called Women's Watch that predicted that there would be overlap between the white supremacist movement and the anti-abortion movement. The systems that were created that we're fighting against in their current iteration will never take care of us. There's a lack of understanding about the continuum of women's health and maternal health in this period. We really have to go back to colonial era and this idea of obstetrical hardiness of black women's bodies. So I used to once think that the system failed Shalon, but it didn't. That's the part that I've come to realize. It didn't fail her. It operated exactly as it was set up to operate. This is American Dreams, Reproductive Justice, and I'm your host, Erica Washington. In this episode, we're exploring medical systems and black and brown communities. The maternal mortality rate for black women is three times the rate that it is for white women. But more surprisingly, the almost mortality rate is higher than most of us realize. But as Chi Chi Oku points out, the likelihood that you will have a healthy pregnancy, which includes the postpartum experience, is embedded in the history of our country. Like a lot of things in our country, it was founded on racist ideology. And so this healthcare system that we exist in wasn't built for people of color. It exploited people of color, really. And a lot of research was done on slaves in ways that was really harmful. We don't have to go that far back to see ways in which people were harmed through a system that was supposedly supposed to care for people. And so to think that we are no longer paying the price for that is naive. And that messaging about trust within the healthcare system, it gets passed down generation to generation. And so there, rightly so, there is distrust um, between Black people, people of color in the healthcare system. It impacts every level of care. If you walk into a doctor's office and you immediately feel like, oh, I shouldn't be here, or there's a, a power dynamic, or, or maybe you're in a clinic where you get a new doctor every time you walk in the door, it's hard to build a relationship where you feel like you can actually share what's happening in your body and even beyond that in your life. And for me, you know, I'm a, identified as a black woman and I've had a lot of education, but there are times when I go into a doctor's office and they're running through the appointment and I'm like, oh, can I actually ask a question now? And they're like halfway out the door before I'm like, oh, I need to ask you something. My name is Alicia Suarez. 
I am an associate professor of sociology at DePaul, that's a D-E-P-A-U-W, university in Greencastle, Indiana. We really have to go back to colonial era and this idea of obstetrical hardiness of Black women's bodies regarding birth and pregnancy. This is still even implicitly and occasionally explicitly taught in medical school now. Some of the textbooks still have twinges of this, but it's still taught culturally um, when people are residents doing their obstetrics residency, etc., especially in major urban public hospitals. So this myth continues. Despite this other discourse about black bodies as physiologically inferior and inherently diseased, you know, so it's really it's really contradictory. But specifically in terms of pregnancy and birth, it was like, well, they used to birth in the fields. They can handle pain. That's a big thing. So when they are in pain, whether it be just normal pain and they want an epidural or when something's wrong, they're often not believed because it's like, oh, you're a black woman. You, you can handle this or just they're seen as uh, being complainers. And that has incredibly deleterious effects. We need to only look at the legacy of James Marion Sims, often referred to as the father of modern gynecology. Sims developed his expertise by operating on black women. Wait, let me say this again. Sims experimented on black women by operating on them without anesthesia because he thought we couldn't feel pain, which is still a commonly held bias. This is what Tufts researcher Ndidiyamaka Amuta Anukaga told a group of journalists in December 22 about Sims' legacy. It's no surprise that structural racism is still showing up today because this is how the field of obstetrics and gynecology started through these procedures being done. This is how we know how to do a fistula repair today. This is how we know how to use a speculum today. This is how so many other cervical and gynecological procedures were perfected on the bodies of these black enslaved women. My name is Jolena Simpson, and I am a traditional midwife and international board certified lactation consultant. Up until maybe even as few as six years ago, you're not going to see black and brown bodies represented in textbooks. You're not gonna know what what a rash looks like on a pregnant body that's not white. Everything is going to be like, the skin pinks up, or make sure that the mom is not pale, as opposed to kind of gray and ashen, like what it would look like if you were black. Or if you see a bruise, it's going to turn these colors. That's not what it looks like on black skin, right? So the education itself isn't inclusive. Most of our medical schools, they train around an ideal patient that is white and it doesn't look like most of us. And so I think it was a couple, maybe last year when uh, there was an OB, OB guide who had a picture drawn of a black baby in the womb. And they were saying that there are no textbooks That's not what they study in school. And I remember this. I was like, I've never seen this before. So if you think about the history of people learning about bodies and the default body for them is a white body, you know that has to do something to the way that you look at people who don't look like that. Even through my education, my preceptors were all white, every single one of them. And so I remember sitting in rooms with my white preceptors and them talking to a black mother going, oh, uh, your, your nipples are just too big. Black women always have really big nipples and areola, so you're going to have problems feeding your baby. And I'm just like, what? What? Right? Or 
the whole body mass thing. Oh, your muscles are too tight. You have too much muscle mass. You're not going to have a problem getting that baby through that perineum, right? So these are the kinds of things that I experienced as part of my education, right? And then I had to push back up against that. I'm like, yeah, no. The thing about the areola, that's not true. I mean, it's the areola, it's not the nipple. So she's going to be just fine. And why would that even be an issue? In the first episode, Dr. Tony Bond mentioned that the idea of reproductive justice encompassed the high rates of fibroids, for example, for black women. And how women had to help each other and not rely on medical systems. Chi-Chi talked about that, too. Would this look different if, if more white women had this? Would there be more information about it? Would, would I have more options? Every other day I see a commercial about erectile dysfunction out there. So I know if we want to put our minds to something, we can figure out the solution. But when you think about all the ways in which racism infiltrates systems, you think about which diseases are we actually trying to find solutions for? Where are we actually investing our research dollars? And more times than not, if it's really only impacting you know, Black women, women of color, people of color, you see the correlation that there isn't as much invested in those spaces. These white midwifery communities still bought into the mythology of medical ideology. So more muscle mass, more disease, uh, will always lie, can't be trusted, non-compliant. That's my, that's one I still hear all the time, non-compliant. I don't understand what you said. I don't know how to do what you're asking me to do. So I'm just going to be quiet and not do it because I didn't understand what you said. Because if I ask a question, you're going to give me a, <sighs> what this means to you and your family is which is just as much put off, like I'm not, you can't even talk to me, right? No, thank you. No, thank you. When you add up all these things, all these factors, a history of racism in our country, I think you get what we have now, which is a really broken relationship between patient and provider. And so really what we are proposing is that we have to look at implicit bias. We can't act like that doesn't impact how patients are treated, the patient-doctor relationship, we need more doctors of color. We need more doctors that look like the communities that they serve. And there is research that shows that there is greater trust You know, when you see a doctor that looks like you. And so those things are important. But we know that's not going to solve everything. And, and you can't, there'll never be only doctors of color. But I think for all of us looking at what does implicit bias look like within these relationships? And then how do we begin to build awareness and then begin to combat that and then start to think about what does it mean to actually think about the context in which someone shows up in a doctor's office or a hospital and taking all of that into account. Those are things that are, I think really help to build trust as well as taking the time, asking questions. But there's some baseline things that we really have to look at and like how our healthcare providers are trained, what that training looks like, and then how we begin to combat what has been set as the standard, which really excludes so many BIPOC people. Because the communication level often switches to the scolding mindset too often in the medical field. You know, I don't need that noise. I don't need that noise. You don't know that I just took four buses to get here. You don't know that I had to pack an entire day's worth of food to get me and my baby here. And now you're 
talking down, being condescending because I'm 20 minutes late. I missed a whole day of work to be here today. I'm not getting paid for this, and I don't need to get that from you and still, you know, be able to take in all that you're saying to me. There's a term that it started to kind of become more popular. It's called weathering. And it's really exciting. I When I first heard about it, I was like, oh, I can't. Someone finally put some language around this where, you know, there, there are these macroaggressions, right, that we experience that are, you know, big racist moments that are like, oh, okay, we, there's no question about it. But then there's these smaller microaggressions that happen to us on a daily basis. And over time, it starts to show up in your body, you know, as stress or as other symptoms. So there, there's this term now called weathering that really addresses all of these microaggressions, what it might do to your body, how it builds up. And I know there's the beginning of some of this research and there's, I know that I'm hopeful that there's going to be more coming out because I think these are things that we really have to start talking about as we're training physicians and training nurses. There's some great research that's been out for about 10 years from a variety of different people that show that a lifetime of daily stressors of experiencing racial discrimination has long-term effects on the body that are actually even passed on to children. So the fight or flight instinct is ramped up all the time, the cortisone levels, because of whether it be macro or microaggressions experienced on a daily basis. So these stress hormones are like ramping up an engine constantly. And this is one of the, you know, many explanations, but really a pretty big one in terms of rates of preterm labor for black women is that because the stress hormones are already amped up all the time, even before pregnancy, that that can really trigger preterm labor. The research suggests that a lot, even, you know, medical sociological research, that's just a harder thing to fix. And so a lot of people like to research stuff that's like has an easier fix and it's like okay well we can just do this you know and and that will help and a lot of us are like actually we just need to dismantle racism and white supremacy <laughs> you know i mean that's the truth and that's you know as a sociologist people are like well don't you have grand ideas and i'm like no yeah, kind of i mean that is the structure and the cultural patterns that lead to all these myths about black women's bodies and mistreatment in healthcare and all these different things, but that's the larger setting. The systems that were created that we're, we're fighting against in their current iteration will never take care of us. So it, it's got to be about how do we dismantle this and create something new? And I, I, I see like these conversations starting to like percolate and bubble up. And I really hope that there is some momentum of saying, okay, what we've been doing is not working. We're in a moment, I think, where we have to reimagine what radical care in our communities and our, for our families looks like, because there are people that are actively believe in freedom, but only for a small group of people. But I think if we are actually going to experience that freedom and that ability to flourish and thrive, that we have to create new systems of care for one another. You're listening to American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. We're going to focus now on how weathering, which you just heard Chi Chi Oak will talk about, affects women after they give birth. Now, we don't put a lot of emphasis on postpartum, but according to a report by the CDC that was put out in September of 2022, most maternal deaths happen after birth, two thirds as many. And most of those are at least a week after birth. In 2017, NPR and ProPublica did a story on Shalon Irving, 
who was a CDC maternal health researcher who died from postpartum hypertension or eclampsia. This is what her mother told ProPublica journalist Nina Martin and NPR journalist Renee Montang in December of that year. It was a great birth. It was just just a beautiful time. So the problem didn't come in until after the birth, and she didn't have an afterbirth plan. We talked to Wanda Irving about what happened to her daughter and the foundation she's established in her honor. My name is Wanda Irving, and I am forever the mother of Dr. Shalon Irving. I currently am co-founder and acting president of Dr. Shalon's Maternal Action Project. Wanda, as you might have noted from that introduction, does not talk about herself without talking about her daughter. They were best friends in life, and Wanda is, at the age of 70, raising her five-year-old granddaughter. Her name is Soleimina, and her mommy called her Sunny. Shalon Irving only had three weeks with her daughter, Sunny. She was so excited to be a mother and so ready. She just, she loved that baby so, so, so much. And she wanted the opportunity to raise her and she would have been an incredible mother. Just totally incredible. My daughter was an amazing woman. She had a dual PhD in sociology and gerontology. She had two master's degrees, one from the premier public health school in America, in the country, in the world, Johns Hopkins. She was a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Public Health Service. She was uh, a brilliant writer, researcher, epidemiologist at the Center for Disease Control, certified health education specialist. But none of those degrees, experience, uh, awards protected her. She died three weeks after giving birth to her daughter, her only child, because she wasn't listened to, she wasn't valued by her providers, and she wasn't given the care that she kept coming in requesting. Shalon was, she was always so giving, so, just so brilliant. She knew when things weren't right. She knew how to express herself. She was very, very articulate, but yet and still, the fact that she was a black woman kept that from coming through. It kept her doctors from seeing her, for, from realizing that there was impending doom sitting right in their waiting room or right in their examination room. And they just didn't pay any attention. She was dismissed and sent home with platitudes like, oh, don't worry, you just had a baby, give it time. And on that last visit, she pleaded with them to do something to help her. She presented with swollen limbs. She wasn't voiding. She had gained nine pounds in seven days and she wasn't feeling right. But yet and still, what they did was tell her, don't worry, give it time. She collapsed five hours after coming back that last time because her blood pressure was through the roof and it was high, stroke high, when she was in the doctor's office. The nurse practitioner was there, took it twice because she thought there was something wrong with the machine. But yet and still, 
they sent her home. Wanda Irving ended up suing the doctor so that Soleil would be taken care of. She didn't care about the money. She wanted her daughter back and she wanted the doctors to be held accountable. That didn't happen. After my daughter died, I was in the doctor's office the next day and he refused to see me. And the nurses, no one would come out and see me. They just wouldn't face me. There were no people of color in that office. So I used to once think that the system failed Shalad, but it didn't. That's the part that I've come to realize. It didn't fail her. It operated exactly as it was set up to operate. And she was just one more victim of a system that does not value women and especially does not value Black women. Nina Martin, who was the women's health reporter at ProPublica at the time, says she came to Shalon Irving's story and the realization that the system doesn't value women through data. There was data on maternal deaths that was collected by the CDC. And honestly, there weren't that many of them every year, it appeared. You know, maybe 700, 800, 900, the numbers weren't great, but they weren't, I mean, those were the number of people who get, you know, shot in Chicago in three months or something like that. Or the number of people who die from smoking-related causes in a day in the U.S. or something like that. So if you think about all the public health issues and numbers, you know, terrible numbers, I mean, COVID, right? Seven to 900 women dying a year just as a number all by itself didn't seem like that many. But what really got my attention was another number that nobody was really talking about at that point, And that was the number of women who nearly die. At the time, the CDC was saying that the number of women who nearly die from pregnancy-related causes every year was over 60,000. So these are women who have terrible infections. These are women who have blood clots that progress to the point of near catastrophe. These are women who have eclampsia or renal failure or hemorrhaging bad enough to warrant infusions of blood. And that's a lot of people. For Nina, it was a family experience she had. And oddly, one her editors had. That led her to be interested in maternal mortality. My sister had given birth in 20 in 2000, actually, and um, in Texas, in her, she had nearly died. Um, she'd had, she developed two postpartum infections, one in the hospital, one after she went home. And I, I remember kind of going and trying to talk to doctors and everybody sort of said, well, this is the only time this has ever happened. We have no idea what's going on. She's fine. She'll get, you know, it, it was just this thing. It was as if this had never happened. And my sister was the only person that this had ever happened to. And it was the only time these doctors, she's lived in Austin, that she, you know, that they'd ever encountered anything like this. And then luckily they found the right combination of antibiotics and she got better. And suddenly it was like a switch had turned. And suddenly it went from being, we don't know what happened to her to, well, we don't know what happened to her and it doesn't matter because she's fine and her baby's fine and you should just enjoy your baby and be thankful. And my sister, who had been through this horrible trauma, just felt so silenced and so ignored and so suppressed this thing that had happened to her that was a huge trauma for her and for her whole family. What I've since learned about maternal complications 
is that they're rare enough so that unless you are a very particular kind of practitioner, you may not see that this happen very often in your life. The really important thing, though, is that our system is so um, fragmented, our healthcare system is so fragmented, and our maternal care system is so fragmented, that the doctors who take care of a woman while she's pregnant are very often not the doctors who deliver her, and then if she develops a complication, she doesn't go back to the doctors who delivered her. She's in a whole new setting. So there's a lack of understanding about the continuum of women's health and maternal health in this period. Not only was Nina's sister treated in a fragmented system, she wasn't counted by the CDC in those 60,000 per year near deaths because she had already left the hospital and developed her infection at home. That showed me that my sister was not a fluke. My sister was a trend. And I really wanted to understand that trend. When Nina went to the researchers to find out how many people almost died after they went home, the researchers didn't have those numbers. What was really interesting about what the experts were telling me at that point was that they had these raw numbers and that's pretty much all they had. They would analyze their numbers and then they would figure out how many of those women were black and how many of them had, had prior C-sections and how many of them are, were obese or something. And so you would come up with this, like these theories about all of this. And, and because if you only know things like how old somebody is and how many C-sections they've had and what their body mass index is and what their race is, then you make assumptions that are all about well, those must be the things that this is all about, because that's what you know, right, as a researcher. And they didn't ever talk to women. They didn't talk to women because they were researchers who don't talk to people, <laughs> they talk to data, or because they were under really strict institutional review board protocols and so forth that really kind of restricted how they're allowed to do research. And so, so you had these people and they actually never talked to women. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna talk to women. And so that's what we started to do. Shalon was a fierce, a fierce equity champion. She had a motto, um, I see inequity wherever it exists. I'm not afraid to call it by name. And I work hard to eliminate it. I vow to create a better earth. She lived that motto both personally and professionally. She worked her entire professional life trying to bring health equity and health equality to Black women and to underserved communities. So to have her die by the same inequities that she fought so hard to eliminate it just has a particular kind of sad irony to it. And the big thing is that when it comes to maternal health and maternal complications and the, the systemic problems that we're talking about, it's about gender, primarily. It's about women being treated as if they are less than, less than men, less than doctors and nurses, less than babies. Women of color, and particularly Black women and Indigenous women, 
it's so much worse for so many reasons that you've already heard about. But it's true that for all women, this is a baseline experience. And that helped us really think about how to do our reporting and to sort of have the first parts of our reporting try to focus on the gender issues and the way that women were not valued, were valued less than their their babies and their fetuses, not just by evil lawmakers trying to push abortion bans in the South, but by their own doctors and their own federal government that didn't pay for Medicaid for new moms after two months, but funded the care for babies for a year to five years. It was, you know, by researchers who puts all of their attention on trying to save babies and almost no attention on the kinds of complications and the kinds of uh, healthcare system reasons that those complications very frequently turn deadly or nearly deadly. And so for me, that was the place to start, was that this is a gender issue. And then on top of it, in that intersectional way that's really real, there's also really profound disparities around race and class. But it, it's for me, really, it starts as a, as a gender issue. We're going to explore how women's bodies are not just ignored, but criminalized from slavery to our current climate in the next episode of American Dreams Reproductive Justice. The voices you heard on today's program are Chigi Oku from Everthrive, Illinois, Las Vegas midwife Jolena Simpson, historian Alicia Suarez, Dr. Tony Bond, who was one of the founders of the reproductive justice movement, journalist Nina Martin, and Wanda Irving, who lost her daughter Shalon to a postpartum infection that was preventable. <laughs>